Jack has been surprisingly quiet. Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the lies we tell ourselves. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Jumpstart your SRE journey today with the experts at 42lines.net. All right, one of my favorite lies, <laughs> I think we even did a whole episode on it, is is the cloud agnostic thing. That's a good uh, one. I, it's one of the you know largest selling points going on right now, especially from one of our favorite tools, Terraform. And you know, I just I I understand the desire, and I guess it's probably why it's so popular. But again, it's it's a lie. You will never get there. And 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 I think as we reviewed in that episode, uh, at least in my opinion, it's something that you don't you you shouldn't try to get to because. Both uh, various platforms have various strengths and weaknesses. You need to embrace the strengths and minimize the weaknesses on each platform. And if you sit there and try to build all this infrastructure to make it to where you can easily have the same thing in every uh, provider, you're spending a lot of time doing things that you otherwise could be doing a lot of other things. Especially if you're looking at the minimal set of like, what are the common services that everybody provides, all the cloud providers provide? That's what we're going to use. Well, suddenly you're building basically everything by hand. Exactly. I really think the term cloud agnostic really means for a lot of people being able to take the same software, put it into a container, and be able to run it on any cloud provider. And you can set up Kubernetes anywhere, but it's the infrastructure around building that Kubernetes, getting the the VPCs in place, getting security correct, getting network access correct, um, that's different for each platform. So running containers, totally, but setting up your your site in a specific cloud platform is hard. Well, and but also different providers have different like, you know, Google doesn't necessarily provide Kafka, they have PubSub. Uh so you know, if you sit there and say, "Well, I'm not going to use native uh, primitives provided to me," then you're sitting there and have to run Kafka yourself. And uh, so I, I think that's really where a lot of people get tripped up as they spend all this time trying to set up all this infrastructure when if they would just embrace the differences between the platforms. Uh, yeah, so Google doesn't offer Kafka, but they have PubSub. So, you know, if you're running in Google, use the use PubSub. Pub, pub I guess if, if your goal is to make your infrastructure, you can just pull it out of AWS and throw it in GCP. Okay, but I think that's a fallacy in and of itself because how often are you going to do that? So you're doing all this work for something that is, who's going to sign off on on that level of work without a hugely good reason? Right. It's gonna, and it's still going to be a mountain of work anyways. So your your previous work making it agnostic was probably better spent doing something else. Exactly. Mine is from one of my previous jobs was famous for this of we will fix it later because I can tell you for a fact that they never did. And it just got worse and worse over time. I know, you know, years later we found stuff hidden away that nobody knew was out there. You know, Hey, what's this Fedora four machine or, or red hat four machine when, you know, meanwhile, 
were running CentOS 8 and 9. It was um, Advanced Server 3. <laughs> exactly. I remember having to poke at that box. <laughs> you know, you don't fix it later. There's never any time like the present. If you see it, fix it. Because if you say you'll fix it later, you won't. Because there's going to be something else. And it gets worse over time. And that's that's the other thing. Fixing it now costs one X work. Fixing it later will cost two. Because you're just going to have to figure out what it was doing in the first place. Why did I write this? And what did it do? And how did it... Exactly. What, are the, what other parts of the system now rely on features and quirks of that thing that I wrote that I have to go back and fix all those other pieces when I break it. It's yeah, it's, it's a terrible, terrible idea to say, Oh, we'll we'll just deal with this later. We'll get back to it. It's fine. Especially if it's on older software, as you mentioned, because by the time you get around to fixing it, uh, you're now so far behind that you're having to do a lot of surgery just to get up to a current revision. Right. My my application that's running there is using the using that old library and if I try to upgrade, I break everything. I can't move it to a new OS. I can't move this you know, upstream because it won't work anymore. So you still spend that much more time and it's just drives me nuts. That being said, I have been in places where yes, we know it's gonna cost later, but it just doesn't make business sense now because it's going to cost something now and we can't afford it now. But as long as you have that that analysis, that that's at least a leg up from just going, we need to ship this, we're just going to do it wrong right now, and then we'll fix it later. And there's no analysis done, or at least a plan to, to do something in the future. That's true. If, if you're ignoring it for a cognizant reason that you thought it out and made this decision to ignore it now for a reason rather than, well, we'll just get to it later. I think my favorite part of the we'll fix it later is saying, okay, we're going to deal with the MySQL upgrade later. We're going to deal with whatever that software revision you're talking about later. And then you realize that actually we're moving off of MySQL. We're moving to Postgres. So now the plan is not that we're going to fix it later. We're just never going to fix it. And then two (laughs) years later, you're still running it. It's like, wow, you never actually move off still there. And that's yep. what kills me. And this dovetails nicely into the third lie, which is it isn't tech debt this time. And it's really easy to convince yourself that this one dirty hack you're doing just this once. Now, th- th- this one's required. This one is needed. This is okay this time. And th- this isn't going to cause a lot of pain down the road because this time it's okay. If you ever have that voice in the back of your head that says this time, stop. Yeah, I love seeing uh, comment lines in, you know, whether it's puppet code or, or you know, puppet manifests or Terraform config files, whatever, where it's like a you know comment to do in all caps and somebody's name, a ticket number, a, a little description that, that you know, of what we'll fix in the future, and it's just you, you go by those all the time. Lie number four: No ops is a thing. I mean, you've got Kubernetes, you've got things running on your laptop, you can just deploy them to the cloud. Who needs operations or a DevOps team? This makes me laugh a lot. Yeah, I, it's stunned silence. I don't even know how to react to that. Such a bad idea. Now, so I'll, I'll try to unpack it just a little bit and say that I do understand the sentiment there. And especially, I imagine a lot of cloud providers are pushing this or, or will say, you know, oh, look, 
developers can easily uh, uh, set this up and do this kind of stuff. I, I will say, as as obviously we get into a more of a, a cloud centric environment and stuff like that, that that roles are changing and uh, things like that. However, you still need an ops person to help you out. Uh, whether you call that ops person, ops, SRE, DevOps, you're going to need somebody dedicated to your infrastructure. Even when you're in a cloud, even when you're using Kubernetes, and 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 even if you're, I would say, even at a pl- provider like Heroku, where you don't even own the infrastructure or anything, it's just you're just pushing apps. You're going to need somebody to help you connect all those dots and build build pipelines and things like that. So uh, I understand the sentiment. It's just it is a another fallacy. And one thing I like to think about is you want to concentrate on your application on where you create value, what your revenue stream is. And so dealing with infrastructure, building Kubernetes clusters, getting your SRE you know, uh, goals aligned, you probably want another team that can work on that so your main developers can focus on what they're good at, driving value for the company. So yeah, you, you need someone on staff to address some of these issues. And I think Amazon calls this the undifferentiated, the undifferentiated heavy lifting, the that kind of common bulk work that is the same from company to company. And yeah, we sh- you should totally not be spending your operations time working on that kind of stuff. You should be leveraging what you can from commonly provided tools or commonly provided services or whatever. But even all those self-service tools that developers want to have and use, they're managed and configured and run and monitored and maintained by ops. That's that's kind of how it works. So, yeah, NoOps is a terrible lie. It's really strange to me, looking at AWS, they have built this whole ecosystem around best practices for running applications in AWS. And the center of that is, of course, Kubernetes. But this whole ecosystem and layers of best practices that they've wrapped around it, and because it's it's AWS... You know, it's a feature to be able to, you know, pull in some consultants to build this for you rather than have that as just sort of a native feature of an AWS account. All right. Number five uh, is in no relation to the previous one, but uh, it's just if I write this one tool, I will solve problem X. And, um, you know, I've been at several places where it is there is a definitely a heavy uh, not invented here syndrome. And you always wind up with problems or trouble down the road when you build that little tool. And when you could have just used some open source tool or something else that's off the shelf and solved your problem. And yes, it may not be exactly how you wanted it, or it may not output. There's all these reasons, right? Why people choose to go this route, but then that person leaves the company and it's a pretty important tool. And then when something breaks, everybody's like, oh, how do, how do I troubleshoot this? How do I fix this? It's also the fallacy of looking at a problem and thinking, oh, that's a, that's a really simple problem. I'll just, I'll just solve it really quickly. And I'm going to solve it by writing code. And that is an admirable trait, but it often leaves out the people are bad at measuring complexity or guessing complexity. And suddenly it becomes a career of your own just to keep this one thing going. A lot of open source projects that we know and love in the beginning started as an internal tool for some company and then grew to the point that it became its own ecosystem. I think Prometheus is a great example of this, that it was what SoundCloud's internal monitoring tool because they had modeled it after Google's thing, but 
they were working on it. Yeah, they had some ex-Googlers there and wanted to recreate what they had at Google, and they surely had need for it. And now it's so much bigger than any of them ever imagined when they first started writing it internally. But a lot of tools take on that that life because as you as you solve these things, it gets really, really big. Well, so yeah, once once it becomes important, it has to be maintained, and it has to work, and it's no longer just a little simple tool. It's now its own thing that has to. It requires care and feeding, and somebody's got to care and feed it. And when the tool only has one customer, you. And this one dovetails nicely to to my next one of how hard could it be, <laughs> which can always tell you much harder than you think. As somebody just said, um, time series databases suck. How hard could it be to write our own? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've even learned this just with, with my own when doing, uh, you know, to try to ticket planning and that kind of stuff where I'm like, ah, oh, that should only take me an afternoon. And I've learned to already double or even quadruple the estimate just because I'm always, I'm always off. Scotty factor. Cause there's always unknown. Yeah. Scotty, Scotty time is sometimes even accurate. Yeah. Ticket planning is one of my favorite examples of this, that looking at something from a, three or four sentence description in a ticket, unless you have people who are really good at writing tickets, it's really hard to estimate if this is a simpler or complex thing, especially if you don't intimately know like the intricacies and the ins and outs of whatever the thing being described is. Yeah, it, it's really difficult. And humans have a, a tendency not to correctly judge this. Even when you're trying to take that ticket and compare it to a similar ticket, is ticket A or ticket B going to be longer or more complex? And even that is incredibly challenging, especially when dealing with infrastructure spaces. And honestly, this ties into the next lie very, very, very tightly as well, which is why should I use Kubernetes when I could write a 200 line bash script or any of those kind of comparisons? This thousand line Python script. <laughs> and the the basic of it is like, I don't need 90% of what Kubernetes does. I just need this, that, and the other, or whatever the, the larger tool is. And so you write a quick and dirty, you know, very, very linear bash script that sort of automates that one workflow. But it's very fragile and there's no error checking and there's no, you know, fault detection and there's no monitoring and there's no state management and it's not idempotent and it's not, and it's not, and it's not, and it's not. And so very quickly you spend weeks of your time getting this 200 line bash script or thousand line Python script or whatever it is, slowly better and better and better. When you're... And every time you turn around, there's this extra kink in the workflow that you have yep. to accommodate for. I need this one little extra feature. Yep. And by the end, it's like, no, you shouldn't have written your own clustering algorithm. You should have just used etcd. <laughs> yeah, it's not perfect, and it doesn't do exactly what you want, but it gets you most of the way there, and then you can move on to the next problem. And hopefully, if you run into problems, other people have ran into it, or it's already been fixed... Standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, the it, it, it's that old thing about if you Google for your problem and you get no results, you're either the first person on the internet to have ever discovered this thing, or you're doing it so incredibly wrong that nobody would even bother trying to do it that way. It's probably not the first. <laughs> it's <one>. true. <laughs> you're never first to do anything on the internet. All right, now this this is probably my favorite lie and that speaking is, of standing on giants jared <laughs> exactly and that's exactly it google does it this way and i <laughs> the number of times and i have been in arguments about some tool or something and it has been well google does it this way or or amazon does it this way yes amazon and google might do it that way but we're also 
not even approaching a fraction of their size. And we don't need, we don't have an entire team dedicated to run this one little tool that they run. There also requires 10 other tools that have however many other teams dedicated to it. So, uh, yeah, any, anytime you're looking at something, and one of the selling points is that this is something used by Google or some large enterprise, uh, double think about what it is because you're probably signing yourself up to some heavy maintenance costs uh, that go along with that tool, uh, especially something like Kubernetes, which we have mentioned before that. You know, Kubernetes is not just one single binary. There's a lot of other moving pieces that go along with it. If you're going to run that yourself, there's a lot of you're signing yourself up to some serious commitment and maintenance there. Even if you're running Kubernetes as part of an AWS or, or GCP service, you've still got a lot of cognitive load. There are three different types of auto scaling in Kubernetes. Which one do you need? Right. Which DNS service are you using internally? Or you could write your own, of course, and add it in because That's right. it's extensible. So if you well, really Google needed something it. custom. <laughs> yeah, my other favorite um, corollary to the Google does it thing is, well, Google also creates their own data center hardware and their own data center networking gear. Do we yeah. need to do that? Well, of course not, because <laughs> we're not Google. But there are some tools that it's like, oh, but Google does it. It's like, yeah, but it our problem doesn't scale that direction. Even things like microservices, which are designed to scale the the social aspects of working on large, complex software, or simple things like having a monorepo, still requires maintenance to maintain and keep the monorepo and the mechanics around building things in that monorepo working and functional. And if you have a development team that is numbered in the hundreds and you have an ops, ops teams numbered in tens of headcount, you can probably make some of those tools work. If you have a development team that numbers in the tens and your operations team can share a pizza for dinner, you should not be doing some of those things. All right. Number nine. This has a favorite place in my heart because just about every every client or company or job that I've had, we always have a DR plan and sometimes you're still missing the boat. I remember working at the university and we were under threat of hurricane and the major dr plan for the for the it of the of the university was the second data center on the other side of the university well one of the main streets between the sides of the university was flooding so you couldn't get to the other side and you know our, our dr plan is perfect but where's the boat <laughs> well the, the dr reminds me a lot of the replication versus backups conversation that people have constantly yes so yeah. i'm going to replicate my my nas i'm going to repl replicate my file server my database my whatever it is to another place and make sure that all of the writes that land are immediately and synchronously replicated over to the other place and the backup is not that and if you think a, rep a replicated set is a backup you have a problem and if you think your dr plan is perfect do you have a problem i have in 30 years of career only worked at one place that had a dr plan and tested it on a routine basis never succeeded in restoring during the dr test but every year that i was there we got closer every year we found holes in the plan and fixed them it was money well spent in my opinion and it was like I said, one place out of all the ones I've worked at actually 
drank the Kool-Aid on DR. The best DR plans are active-active DR plans. Yep. Which relates to, Jared, I'm going to pass this one off to you as our final one. Sure. And that's, I, I was going to say that this is kind of hand-in-hand, because when you talk DR, a lot of people say, well, yeah, well, we're multi-region. So, and that's sort of true as long as, as you mentioned, it's active-active. A lot of places where I've gone to where or I've, I've seen infrastructure where it's, yeah, we have things in, in uh, multi-region, it's either in an active-passive type way, or even worse, half of the things are in re- uh, region A, and half of the things are in region B, and they must communicate to function. So if you have any kind of network partition or region disruption, right. the Both application failed. stops working. It's the old networking conversation about, okay, you have two gigabit lines coming in from different ISPs. Do you load balance so you can use both of them at the same time, or do you have them as failover, or do you route half the traffic to one or the other, knowing that if one goes down, you're going to have a constrained bandwidth, and how do you map that out? It's yep. it's hard to think about, especially when the business looks at the, how much money are we spending on this other region? Yeah. Hey, we should we should use it. We should use all the money we're spending. It's like, yeah, but now that you're relying on it being up, and you need that capacity... You're no longer N plus one. You're just N again. Exactly. And part of this relates back to number one, being cloud agnostic again. Because if, especially if you're using one of the big three cloud platforms, even if you're a medium to large size company, if that cloud platform has a multi-regional outage, then there's probably a whole lot more going wrong on the internet than having multiple cloud platforms is going to save you from. Exactly. Yeah, when AWS goes down, it's, it's not just you. <laughs> so many of your customers and your suppliers and data sources and everything else external to yourself are gone as well. <laughs> yeah, think about all the vendors that you rely on services of theirs. Like you, you use PagerDuty, you use some kind of cloud build service, you use GitHub, whatever it is you're using that's hosted somewhere else. When Amazon that has an outage, service that displays your status page in case you're down. <laughs> yeah, when the major service providers have outages it doesn't just impact you it impacts everybody else and make sure that everybody else has done the same good enough job to keep everything running it's a really hard problem and we tell ourselves oh yeah no we're, we're multi-region we're fine we would like to thank 42 lines for sponsoring this episode 42 lines is a devops consulting firm specializing in observability cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Jumpstart your SRE journey today with the experts at 42lines.net. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Um, I do have a meeting on Monday. I've, I said something about a monorepo, and there was 